<laughs> All right, good evening, everybody. Thanks for joining us tonight. We're sitting here with our our latest guest, who is a successful entrepreneur and investor in the healthcare industry, Mr. Dave Steffi. Dave, thanks so much. Hey, it's great to share an evening with you guys. Hey, Dave. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's been a while. Yeah, I mean, I was just telling Chris, I bought and sold. I don't know, over a dozen cars with you guys, <laughs> relied on you guys for advice. How'd that work out for you? He's, reti- <laughs> he's retired in the good seat. Yeah, so. well, <laughs> was pretty good. Dave, where were you born? Um, Indianapolis. I grew up in Columbus in the shadow of Ohio State, so that's where I went to, to school. Fortunately, they had to take everyone who was a high school graduate in Ohio, so that included me. <laughs> And um, after that, uh, you know, the Vietnam was going hot and heavy, and there weren't any deferments. It might, might have been for medical school, but not for anything else. Didn't care whether you were married or going to graduate school or any of that stuff. That was all gone. Mm-hmm. So I graduated on a Friday and was at Fort Knox on uh, Monday. And when you volunteer for the draft, rather than being drafted, you can either pick your MOS, your military occupational specialty, or you can pick where you want to go. At least you could then. And I thought, well, since they're shooting, maybe the best thing for me would be as far away from the shooting as I could get. And, you know, you could maybe pick locations. But I thought, well, if I'm in a hospital setting, I'm probably going to be okay. So I, I signed up for the Medical Corps, and it was a great experience, a great decision. Um, got very interested in the, the business, the logistics side of uh, healthcare, getting the right stuff to the right people at the right time, which is mm-hmm. really critical, particularly uh, in medicine, but, but what we called supply then is now probably called logistics now, and that's what got me interested. So when I got out, I went back to Ohio State and got a job at the hospital. And after a few years, it became pretty evident that, um, you know, you're going to have to get a graduate degree if you're going to move up because then you had to have this sort of certificate to uh, to really be a hospital administrator. Mm. So, so back in Ohio, <clears throat> as a kid, did your parents have money or no money? No, my dad liked to fix things. He was really, really good. He should have been an engineer or a builder or something, but he was a salesman and, and uh, loved him to death. He's my, my all-time favorite person, but um, he just wasn't cut out for sales. And my mom didn't work, um, so we, uh, we got by. We didn't own a house, but you know we had apartments and stuff. In Columbus, like downtown? Yeah. No, uh, first on the east side, and then that got a little sketchy, and then so we moved out to the northwest side. So and so he did he just float from sales job to sales job, or um, he uh, was a, a sales rep for a number of furnace companies, and uh, that didn't work out so well. And then he became a um, director of sales and marketing for uh, an industrial furnace company, and that's where he. He ended up. Got it. So you were what? Lower middle class, something yeah, middle class. Yeah, I mean, we didn't suffer. Yeah. And and did you do you remember where you went to elementary school? Um, probably on the east side of Columbus, and then then uh, for high school we went went to the northwest. 
Got it. And were That's you, cool. Did you did you have a, um, a job? Were you working or were you a student? Yeah, I was a bagger in the grocery store. What, what, what grocery store? Still there? No, it's called Big Bear. Big Bear. Yeah, Big Bear. I, I think it's called Kroger now. Kroger's. <laughs> I think Kroger's. Kroger's bought everything. Yeah, yeah they, own everything. they own everything. So but, uh, so did, did as a kid growing up in, in Ohio with a dad who fixes everything, did you have any sort of special talent, sports? No. Nothing. Nothing. Just, did you build a go-kart? No, I'm uh, completely <laughs> devoid of any talent and skill, were, were athletic, good, anything. Were you a good student? No. <laughs> I was actually a very mediocre to poor student. Oh, God. So, you, yeah. so, and then what was like, what was, you know, junior high like? You remember? Was it okay or uh, high school okay or terrible? You or? know, I was, uh, I was really blessed. We um, uh, got into a school district. Uh, thanks to my parents who made some sacrifices to get an apartment they probably couldn't afford, but in a, in a good good school district, and I had every opportunity to uh, learn well in a great learning community uh, such as it was, but I really didn't take advantage of it. And uh, my high school counselor uh, actually planted the seed of uh, being in the Army, but because I could get into Ohio State, I managed to shuffle my way through in a little over four years, um, and then I, eventually I did end up in the Army, which was just a great, great thing. What was your major in at Ohio State? Uh, business, you know. Business admin or your business? Yeah, I have a Bachelor of Science in Business, which is like a crazy amalgamation of <laughs> what, what science in, is involved. I, I'm not exactly <laughs> sure, but, you know. That's uh, the title yeah, of the yeah. degree. Math. How were those four years at Ohio State? Uh, they were great. I had to work, but, you know. What were you so, doing? Jeez. Um, dug ditches for the gas company, and um, that lasted a, a couple of summers, and then I had to go to summer school one year to graduate on time. So. What, what was your first car? Uh, this, I know you guys are going to just think this is not real, but it... it it is real. When I finally made some money, and I've always loved cars, we, I, you know, spent some formative years in Indianapolis. Went to the 500 as a little kid. Um, but my first car was a Mercedes 190 SL. Oh shit! <laughs> when I had some money, um, I just loved that car. I loved the way it looked. Um, like when you were 16? No, I didn't own a car till oh, okay. I was working. And that was after college, after the army. Well, oh uh, shit! Uh, so, um, so as a as sixteen year old kid, getting around, what did you do? Take a bus, a friend, a bike? Well, normally borrowed my parents' car. I uh, got it. And what, what was your dad car guy? Uh, car guy? He uh, embedded one lesson, and that was, you know, although we could never afford it, if he could ever buy a Packard or a Mercedes, he would never have to buy another car. And it was always his ambition, but we never quite got there. <laughs> Patrick, I agree. I agree with him. So, so you were you were sort of hustling those those days. Well, it just had to work. Yeah, you should, mm -hmm. yeah. And and so you get to you get to graduate Ohio State, and you decide I'm going into the army Monday. Well. I didn't really decide that. It was like you didn't have a choice. Either you were going to get drafted and have no control, 
and you know what that meant, yeah. or you were going to volunteer for the draft and have at least some control. A little choice. Yeah. And what yeah. was that, 1965? Five. Oh, so that's yeah. early. So that's really when Vietnam was yeah. just ramping up yeah, it was, like crazy. Yeah. Ooh. Ooh. So, and did you stay stateside? Yeah, the fortunate thing uh, doing what I was doing, which was medical supply, is um, I never had to go overseas. And that was nice because in the really trying to look back now, I really realized how formative that was to really understand the supply chain in medicine. And it afforded me that opportunity, and that was just great. And, and, and a higher opportunity to stay alive. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's, Where were you stationed? <laughs> uh, most of the time in Fort Sam Houston in San Antonio. And so, how, so there's less shooting there. Yeah. Well, <laughs> a, little, a little time at Fort Knox and a little time at Fort Ord. But, yeah, how, how long were you in the service? Uh, all told, six years. Um, counting the time I had to be in the reserve. So so what do they do? Did, did you get on like a, a GI bill for, for grad school? No, no, no nothing. No, no, no. So you did four years and then, and then went into the reserves? No, no, you, you have a six year obligation when you volunteer for the draft. Okay. And it can be made up of, you can spend uh, up to a year on active duty and the rest of the year in the reserves, or you can spend two years on active duty and less time in the reserves. So there were choices. Okay, and you chose two I years? Chose, I chose to spend the least amount of time on active duty that I could figure out. Right, yeah. and, and so you spent that in the supply chain figuring out the basics or, the, or just how yeah. it works? Just how to get the right stuff to the right person at the right time it was so critical particularly during vietnam right the margin bad, for error is you know, pretty small i mean if you didn't have the right supplies in the right people's hands you know the results were catastrophic so it's pretty and and then when did you go back to ohio uh right after i got out of the army then uh went straight to the hospital and got a job and um worked my way up from uh, the business office to um, kind of not hospital administration, but administration in the business office. And basically at that point, that's when you got to make the decision to go to, to graduate school. And I had bought that 190 SL, which... Which was out. probably the only 190 SL in, in Columbus. There was a... Uh, <laughs> A dealer there who fortunately bought the car from me and put me into a great car, a 1965 Pontiac GTO. Mm, fabulous shit. car. Fabulous, fabulous car. And then from that, um, when I left Columbus to go to uh, SC, um, I drove that car. I'm sorry. I uh, traded that car in for a 1960. I think it was a 67, but it could have been a 66. Uh, yellow Fastback Mustang, and I loved that car. And I started to drive that down to Route 66, because that was how you got to L.A. from Columbus. Mm -hmm. And during that time, there were sort of bandits on the road. So um, I pulled into a, a gas station, and I had to get something to eat. I had to do some other stuff. And I came out, and that was during the time where there was an actual attendant there who would fill up your tank. 
and the car was on the rack. And uh, you know, what's going on? I said, well, we we are checking your oil, and we think we need to change your oil. I said, well, sorry, I don't have any money. <laughs> uh, you know, let's take the car down. Let me go on my way. Well, they didn't put the plug back, and so the car went about three blocks. And oh, it just seized up. So fortunately, were the, they in the, on it? Was that it, part? That was that was the scam. Not, not typical, but um, they would take advantage of people on Route 66 without a state license plates who looked like they didn't know what they were doing, and mm -hmm. I fit the bill, and so they thought they'd scam me for some money. And unfortunately, uh, basically, the car seized up, and. I was near enough to a uh, used car lot that I could walk over there, and the money that <clears throat> the bank had lent on the car, they never leaned the car. <laughs> so I actually had clear title, and I was able to swap into a Comet, which I hated. But. <laughs> a Comet. <laughs> I want to check back with you. When you got that Mercedes mm -hmm. and you showed your dad, uh -huh. what did he say? He thought it was cool as hell. Did you guys go for? Really did. <laughs> did you guys go for rides or were yeah, you like? Yeah, he loved. I mean, you know, the car turned out to be not a great car, but right. he loved the idea of having a Mercedes in the van. It looked so good, and it, it was. It was a beautiful car. Oh, cool! And th and that was probably a pretty cool moment for you. Yeah, but it wasn't very practical. So yeah. we to, <laughs> convertible to, in Ohio. Yeah, it didn't didn't fit the bill. So. Uh, that got me into a comet to uh, to SC and um, you know, basically had to work. So two year program took about three years. How'd you pick SC? Um, I started out um, with the idea of going to the University of Chicago because they had a top rated program, and I got to the south side of Chicago. I just spent the summer uh, in SC with the. I'm, I'm sorry, in. Um, you know, the South Bay and El Porto, that, that kind of area, Manhattan oh, Beach. Yeah. And um, ended up uh, at the University of Chicago on the south side of Chicago and just, I, you know, I didn't really have the money to pull it off without working. And I thought, I don't like this yeah. at all. And that's when I got in the car and went down to um, – Route 66 to, uh, to L.A., and uh, fortunately, the people at SC were absolutely fantastic. They said the quarters already, or the semesters already started. Um, we uh, will help you find a job, which they did, and uh, you can start in the winter. What and were you studying? I was in the, the health policy and administration program. So, And, and where did you live uh, when you came here? On campus? Um, no, no. no. Uh, I went back to El Porto, Manhattan Beach. Area. Yeah. And, and so this is what, 1975, four? Eh, no, no, it's like the late 60s. These are, these are the years where you could actually just go to USC? Yeah. Like, yeah, it wasn't, um, it was expensive. But um, you could get in. Yes, exactly. That's the <laughs> word I was searching. For. How was how was the six the late sixties in Manhattan Beach as a as an Ohio yeah. kid in Southern California? How was that culture shock? Jeez. Well, if you remember, there was a movie that Johnny Depp was the star, Love. and uh, it was all about the marijuana transportation that was going on using stewardesses. Yeah. 
And so I actually met that guy on the beach once. George because, Jung. Because we <laughs> um, hung out with um, kind of a crowd that uh, included some of the people that do him. So I did, <laughs> I did actually meet him once. Um, and then uh, I had my comet, and um, as I accumulated a little money, I couldn't wait to get rid of that. So I got a 69 uh, Volkswagen which was a great little gem of a car, mm -hmm. and uh, graduated and went back to Ohio. There were really no, no jobs in California, and those... There were no uh, jobs here? No, the only job uh, that I could get was a hospital in Santa Barbara, the Santa Barbara County Hospital, which closed. Mm. So, and I kind of knew it was gonna close. Um, compare and contrast the women, the girls at the time from Ohio to California. Um, <laughs> it was easier to meet girls in California. Huh. Much easier. Hotter? Much easier. Were they hotter? Yeah, I wouldn't say that, but I would say that they were just easier to meet. Yeah. More uh, eager? Well, no. More <laughs> uh, friendly? There was a place called the Blue Book. It was a bar that had a band in Manhattan Beach. Might have been in El Porto, but I think it was in Manhattan Beach. I haven't heard the term El Porto. Um, That's a, it's uh, like an unincorporated area just to the north of, of Manhattan Beach. Oh, cool. Like right, right, is that right below the airport? Or the no, that city was torn down. It's right before you get to the place you're, you're okay. thinking of. Huh. And um, there was this bar called the Blue Book. And the Blue Book uh, had a band, at least on the weekends when I was there. And... Uh, these girls would come in and they'd have these uh, little things that they carried, which was hair curlers and I don't know what else was in there. <laughs> you could always tell they were from the valley or somewhere that they were coming down for the weekend and they were looking for a place to stay. So that was weird. I never encountered that in Ohio. <laughs> yeah, you wouldn't see that in Ohio. <laughs> and where, where, was, where did you get a job in Ohio? What was the hospital? Uh, the first one was University of Cincinnati Medical Center, and then uh, Ohio State called and asked that I would I come back, and I did. How long were you at the Cincinnati Hospital? A year and a half. Okay. Cincinnati. So, so since you were since you got out of the service, you you already knew your path was hospitals. Yeah. yeah like yeah. like you you that's what you defined. Absolutely. Yeah. And then. Um, I was able to uh, run the uh, wheels off the Volkswagen, and the uh, Datsun 240Z came out, and I thought that was just an incredibly good-looking car. And uh, there was no way to get one, because everybody wanted one, except there was a dealer in a small town in Indiana that a friend of mine put me onto, and I was able to get a car relatively quickly. And uh, I drove that car till I could see the asphalt through the floorboards. <laughs> it wasn't the best steel in those those cars, but loved that car. And uh, all through uh, Ohio State, where I eventually got to be the director of hospitals, um, you know, I was into Datsuns. You know, they kind of screwed it up. The the car got kind of fat and flabby and. Mm -hmm. Not very interesting, but the 240Z was the, the 240 was the best yeah. car. Still, it's a super <clears throat> iconic. Yeah, and then um, 
after Ohio State, uh, basically, uh, I thought, you know, if I'm going to really exercise an entrepreneurial interest that I have, I've got I've got to in, get into the for-profit investor-owned side of of hospitals. So I went to Nashville and uh, worked for a company that was purchased by uh, by HCA, and then three of us took our severance that HCA had given us, and we and we uh, started another company. So. And, Sorry, I don't want to interrupt. I don't want to get yeah. too far. So when you're in, you're at the university or Ohio <coughs> State University, they call you and they say, mm -hmm. we want you back. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden you're running, how long did it take you to, to run all their hospitals or run the hospital? Oh, about three years. And that's... The guy who recruited me. That's a big job, right? That's yeah. a huge job. It was 1,100 beds at the time. It's probably smaller now, but... Um, and, you're, and you're young. Yeah, I was 29. Yeah. I mean, are, do you, at that point, I guess, do you, like, I mean, that seems like a gigantic job. Do you grasp that? Like, oh, fuck, this is a huge job I have. I know it was a huge job, but uh, it would have been better had I had more experience, mm. for sure. But you were, you were uh, it's a serious job. You're, you're getting paid well. Yeah. Uh, Absolutely. You're wearing, you had suits with big, <coughs> big lapels and yeah, big collars and look at photographs, flare, flared pants. Yeah, look at photographs back in the day, and it's pretty silly. Uh, mustache or? or, yeah, yeah, or absolutely. Or yeah. a feathered hair? No, mustache, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> I love the sound. Wow. <laughs> so you, what gives you the entrepreneurial bug? I don't know. I wish I knew that because I think some people love the creation of an effort to serve other people and other people like to be a part of it. Mm -hmm. Other people don't want anything to do with it. So it's a question of risk tolerance to some degree. Mm -hmm. I never focus so much on the reward aspect of it and I never focus so much on the risk aspect of it. Um, when we got our severance from HCA, my severance was $100,000, which is a fair amount of money. Mm -hmm. And we put it all into um, this company, Republic Health, and then kind of uh, told my wife, and I kind of didn't tell her. Maybe I, in the interest of full disclosure, I could have been a little more transparent, but... <laughs> She uh, is a nurse and has been very supportive and has helped run our little business um, since she retired from nursing. But having her clinical background has been enormously helpful. So we went to uh, uh, Dallas to start that. And was, was uh, that was that deemed risky? Did you think it was risky? Did you I didn't like I I mentioned uh, you the didn't? risk reward part of it. I never focused on for some reason. I know that that's really important, and I'm not diminishing that in any way. I'm not encouraging anybody to take unnecessary risk, but it just didn't occur to me. So what was the draw in that investment or in that move? I like the guys that um, I was working with, that we were starting it with. We all got along. Was it a startup or an ongoing it was concern? A, it was an absolute startup. And then I had relationships with uh, some of the hospitals that I had managed for hospital affiliates, the company that the HCA bought. 
and we um, used those relationships, managed them to uh, acquire those hospitals um, or manage them for, for the owners that owned them. And that was kind of the start of it. And then we bought a, another little hospital in Texas and then made a uh, big deal with National Medical Enterprises and uh, on the heels of that deal, we went public. Who was who who the, the, you know, the, the front man? Were you the front man? No. The guy who put up the money uh, was a guy uh, who was the chairman of the company in Nashville, mm -hmm. and he couldn't get into the right clubs and all of the stuff that used to go on in the South that if you weren't from there, you couldn't be a part of. And he... He just wanted to be in a, a bigger pond, and so he decided to go to Dallas, and he put up the bulk of the money, and he said, this is where the company's going to be, and we saluted, and we all moved to Dallas, literally, all of us. Wow. So all five of us. And and how was Dallas? Is this the JR years? Yeah. Uh, I didn't like it as much as Nashville. I really liked Nashville. Nashville has lakes and mountains and geography and, and fun stuff to do. And, and Dallas, I thought, uh, was not blessed that way. Um, but a cool town to be an entrepreneur. Yeah, like things were happening. Yeah. Yeah. So. Uh, and what was, was, the, was the MO to buy or operate hospitals and acquire more or build more or what? Or did you buy hospitals, or what we, did you do? We rarely built hospitals you, you, because it was much more capital efficient to buy them. Um, so and you, when we ran out of money, we basically started a management services business where we would provide the hospital administrator, the director of nursing, and the chief financial officer, and then we had a purchasing system, and then we had various experts in other areas like housekeeping. In physician recruitment, and so you could replicate that every time you got so, into yeah, the hospital. It, it so, almost sounds like, in today's term, you've when you were building it, you were building like a back end software, you know, a, a physical software of like people doing, yeah. you know, the the processes. So the things that we had to have to run the hospitals we owned. We could take those resources and apply them to hospitals we didn't own right. for a management fee, and then we could conserve capital, and we were always capital constrained. So um, that's what we did, and we ended up, I think at the end of the day, kind of owning 50 hospitals and managing 100. And then um, that company was bought on a leveraged buyout. Um, and so was that another a, guy was, and I decided to do it again. Was that a REIT, uh, like a hospital REIT or no? No, no, no. Okay. No, we, uh, we operated them. Yeah. Absolutely. And so when you, were you, when you were operating them, was there a point where you realized you're like, oh, dude, we're making money. This is good. Well, there were reimbursement advantages at that time. So, uh, you were basically reimbursed by Medicare on a cost plus system, and then private insurance kind of spun off their rates off of what Medicare was paying. So uh, the things that banks liked was the cash flow was there. 
Mm-hmm. And if you did a good job on receivables, um, you know, the cash flow was always going to be very good and very good in terms of being able to leverage uh, smaller and smaller amounts of equity to being able to buy bigger and better hospitals. And that's what we did. But sooner or later, your equity gets stretched and mm-hmm. you either go public, which we did, or um, you merge with somebody else or you buy somebody else. You, you went we public and things. then there was an LBO? Exactly, exactly. We were a public company and uh, drew some interest from uh, a leveraged buyout firm who offered way too much money. And then they were really leveraged up and uh, did, was, was not successful. We all left and then another guy. Man, that sounds so familiar. Right. <laughs> I'm surprised they didn't offer you to buy it back for pennies on the dollar. Uh, we did end up, I think, buying a couple because <laughs> we started another company, another guy and I. And um, that one was really successful because we were concentrating on smaller markets where there was less competition for assets. And basically through that, we were able to grow pretty rapidly on a small capital base. When you went public, mm-hmm. um, what was that like? That was a thrill. Then. Yeah. Did you guys go to Wall Street? Oh, yeah. So you ran absolutely. the bell. Yeah, absolutely. When? When was that? What year? Uh, the first time was 1983. <laughs> first <and> time. Then <laughs> um, I've been there five times. So. Oh, Jeez. fuck. Really? Yeah. Yeah. So... Uh, I mean, after you, after you ring the bell and you it goes public, it starts trading and it's exciting. Like, what do you do? Or, or, or do you, you go to you go to the circuit? Right. What, no, what do you do? No, you get interviewed by Maria Bartiromo, who is one of the most beautiful people, yeah, in the world. And television doesn't do her, her justice. She's absolutely. And this is pre CNBC. Uh, Eighty three. Uh, well, she was. <laughs> I don't know who she was working. She was for. with uh, before CNBC started. She was with like just a, a a station, but doing financial news. No, this was this was like C. Well, I don't know. So but yeah, I agree I, with you. I, I, on on sort of Pat's vein of of that. So you you're going public, and you know that you go public on a Friday, right? Or or I don't know how they mm-hmm. do it. Or Monday. What is like the few days leading up to that? Do you guys charter a jet and fly out? No, you have to go on a roadshow, which basically you're talking to investors literally all over the world, and you um, have a pitch deck, and you talk about the company and the prospects for the company, and usually you're talking to funds, um, and the fund manager and a couple of analysts are there, and you have three to four meetings a day, and the underwriters arrange it all, and... They arrange the transportation, and it's uh, tiring but kind of exhilarating. And then um, there's, I forget what it's called, but there was this fabulous woman at Merrill Lynch who basically set the price and used all the information that she was getting from people in terms of uh, the book that she was creating for people who were buying the stock, and then she would... Uh, set the price, and that was that was the moment of truth. So, right. so uh, yeah, she is she a bookmaker or market maker or something like that. 
I forget what it's called. But, but she said, you're so before, before I, I you went public. I think in the south side of Chicago, it's called a bookie. <laughs> <laughs> so before you went public, they said you're going to go public on Tuesday with yeah. a range between 16 and 18 or something like that. And that's the lady doing it. That's, that's making sure all the institutions are going to buy the stock at that number or whatever it is. At that time, and I don't know what it is now, at that time you wanted your book to be twice, you wanted the orders in the book to be twice what was available. Mm -hmm. Because some of them were going to fall away. Some people were putting in for allocations just double, knowing that they were going to get cut back. And so if you had that kind of a book, she could, you know, set a price that, um, was pretty attractive. If you didn't have that kind of book, then um, you so know, the either. first the first time you did it, the stock opens it it opens at X and then it goes up. Yeah, and are you guys high fiving? Yeah, you drinking you like, drinking Dom. What are you yeah, doing? Yeah, like what is that? What is that moment? No, no. <laughs> um, you, you, you you're on the so you're you're on the road for probably six weeks before, mm -hmm. and so the business kind of gets ignored so you better get back <laughs> right because now everyone's watching business <laughs> and then you have um a certain amount of capital you've probably done some things anticipating that you're going to be successful in your capital raise and so those things have to be executed and it's, so what did what did dave steffi do did did he, you go buy a dotson did you go? No, <laughs> what did did no. you, you buy a did Rolex? You, did you, you celebrate a, a presidential? in some way? Did you no, uh, did you pay off a mortgage or anything? No, the, see, the issue then and probably still is uh, it's you tied couldn't up. sell. Yeah, yeah. So you had a lot of paper wealth, but you know you didn't. So you just keep doing what you're doing. Cash, you know. And then. Um, over time, you file a plan to sell so many shares, and if you follow that plan, then you pretty much stay out of uh, the SEC's way because uh, if you're selling to a preordained plan, they can't claim that you're selling because you had some sort of knowledge. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So we all did that. And so you basically sell out, and what, what, ha what happens when you and your new partner decide to start a new venture? Well, we were, uh, because we'd had two successful uh, public offerings, we were able to do some things that uh, otherwise we couldn't do. So we started a bunch of other businesses. One was a hospital management company in the UK, which was a lot of fun. Um, and why, why was that fun? Uh, just going over there, understanding the culture, which, which I really have grown to love and is the business is the business similar? The business was a lot harder because when we went over, Thatcher was trying to privatize parts of the National Health Service. And I'll just give you an example. If you were over fifty five then, I don't know what it is now, and you needed dialysis that so you couldn't get it. That that's how rationing worked. And that's just one example. Jeez. Um I was doing some due diligence, and I was on the east side of London. I actually went up to the room uh, where the elephant man died just to see it because I was kind of curious. Yeah. And I was walking up these drafty stairwells with the wind blowing and paper flying all over the place and people lighting fires in the stairwells to keep warm. Uh, 
it was not a, not a good thing. So we thought, well, there's an opportunity. There's a burgeoning private insurance market that you're going to be supportive of what we do. So uh, we went to the UK and, and did um, uh, four hospitals there, bought a couple and, and converted a couple of um, facilities that uh, could be converted into, into a hospital type. What, what year was that? That would have been in the mid-80s, kind of like when Thatcher, like 85, 86, were you, were 84. You, were you welcomed? Yeah. Like American investment was welcome? Well, it was a tough time in England because at the time, the coal miners were going on strike. In fact, we were meeting our CEO, my partner and I, uh, in a pub, and the miners were having a demonstration in Hyde Park well, the demonstration fizzled out after about five minutes, and these guys started pouring into the pub. Oh, shit. <laughs> and so there are three of us in suits uh, having a business meeting, and these guys pour in, and we thought, you know, oh, boy. Right. This, this, is, this, is, this is not going to be good. But they were, they were great. They were fun and friendly and, you know. You ever take the Concord? No. No? No. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a good question. I missed the Concord. Yeah, the Concord was good. <laughs> You live in rarefied circles, you know. Well, I never went on it, but, but I've heard, but I've heard good things. Yeah, we should have it now. Yeah, like it's it's sad that it lived then, but not now. I think they're trying to build one. Yeah, they're trying to build one. That was my Porsche period, so I went through. What was your first Porsche? Porsche? A three fifty six, yeah, sixty five SC. Great car. It was a great car. My brother in law, who's a mechanic, uh, kind of went over that car and said. This is a 65. These guys are way ahead of their times. And then uh, went through the 911 series. And um, then I met uh, uh, well, a friend of mine, and I had, had done some investing. And he uh, said, you know, Maserati's coming out with this great car. You should go take a look at it. And I did. And I liked another beautiful design, the GT. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, so I got one and got close to the service guy there, who you guys know, and I'm not going to remember his name, and maybe you do too. Um, but he said, you know, you have this car. You're not putting very many miles on it. The car's depreciating. You should really think about a Ferrari that has the potential of appreciating in value, and you don't drive it much, so you're kind of a really good candidate. And then I went over, and and the the three musketeers were there, <laughs> you know, Chris, Pat, and George. And um, I just showed up and got into a California, and it's another beautiful design. So who and, was uh, that? Was that Alan? What? It be Alan. Or no. a younger guy or yeah, older guy? He went to Washington, younger guy. He ended up going to Washington. Uh, uh, was it Josh with glasses? Yeah. Yeah, he had classes. Yeah, Could have been probably, Josh. It's, it's probably it sounds like Because I remember you guys saying, yeah, yeah we love Josh. Yeah. Um, so when you're, when you're doing your deal in London, uh-huh. financially, does it work differently because you're a U.S. citizen? Or how does that work? Well, we had a European partner, a European private equity fund. Okay. And we had um, a U.S. venture capital fund where both of those were our primary backers. And the European uh, fund really handled all the banking relationships. Got it. So it was easier, way easier. Yeah, I, I don't 
I think just going over as Yanks in London, <clears> and, you know, it wouldn't have worked as well, or maybe even not at all. <coughs> so, 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 what brought you guys to the West Coast, Newport Beach? Um, at were you public? Were you, were no, you, this was back um, in our first IPO when I was doing acquisitions mm -hmm. and just, you know, on the plane all the time. And so I said, you know, I don't, uh, I don't mind Dallas, but if I could, I'd like to, to go out <laughs> to the West Coast. And if you guys, you know, if nobody objects, because everybody wanted to go back to Nashville, <coughs> and I knew they weren't going to let anybody do that because there would have been a mass exodus of everybody in Nashville. But I said, yeah, you know, go for it. You know, have an office in Dallas, but, uh, you know, you're on the road. You can live wherever you want. So that was great, and that's how I got out here. And then my partner actually moved from Dallas to Nashville, and then he and I collaborated a company called Community Health Systems, and that was the one that specialized in smaller markets, and we did the company in the UK, and then we did some uh, companies in the long-term acute care hospital space, which was basically a hospital without the diagnostic capability, but with all the therapeutic capabilities, so we didn't have big elaborate labs and radiology and surgery and all that kind of stuff. So that's the stuff that <clears throat> you, people are seeing today. And, yeah. Right? Just smaller. Well, long-term acute care hospitals, since they were cost-reimbursed by the government, the government thought they were paying twice because you had these things called diagnostic-related groups, DRGs, which would be the payment for the particular diagnosis that the patient has. So the patient gets discharged. He still needs hospital-type care, but mm -hmm. it need to be diagnosed it and need all this other stuff that a hospital is able to provide. So we came up with this concept that had been around a long time for people with acute pulmonary disease where they were reimbursed by cost, but they were long-stay patients who just needed therapy. They didn't really need um, the armatarium of a, of a full-blown acute care hospital. So we started those and basically uh, using a space that we would lease from uh, hospitals, and uh, that turned out to be a pretty decent little business, and we actually did five of those companies. We kept getting bought out by the same guy, um, which was uh, interesting. Was, uh, he, was he rolling them all up into yeah, something bigger? Yeah, yeah. So he'd let us accumulate all the losses, and then when it got to the point where we're real close to profitability, he'd buy us out. So we did that, you know, more than a couple times. And, and is that is that still an ongoing concern? Mm -hmm. Yeah, doing very well. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then uh, basically, I have always wanted to have a partner, and a partner who would keep me honest, not so much for the money, although clearly that's helpful, but somebody that would tell me this idea is crappy. Don't do it. Mm -hmm. And so, um, just as a soundboard, I've, I've always had a had a partner, and for a while we would have a third partner involved who was a headhunter, 
and he was based in Atlanta, and he would find the executive to actually run the business. So we did a hospice business, which was terrific. We were the largest hospice provider by offices in the country. Um, is, and that is, was a really, really interesting business. Is hospice, um, my dad was in hospice for, I don't know, a week or so before he passed. How was his is, day? Is, Did he enjoy it? <laughs> <laughs> Your mom's going to kill me. Your mom's going to kill me. Oh, yeah, he loved it. Um, is hospice, is that a made-up word? Is it? Is it a brand name? What is it? Hospice was a concept that was developed in the UK uh, by a nurse, uh, basically to care for people who were dying. So it's and, just a generic term. And it's actually what hospitals always have been. Mm -hmm. It was a refuge for the dying. But when modern medicine came into being and you still needed a place to care for the terminally ill, she came up with this concept. And then... Um, the government decided to embrace it here because it would mean less cost to them if they could get them out of the hospital. And mm. so we started a business that we thought we could professionalize what was going on. And we did. And we had, I think, about 110 offices when we sold it. Um, and that was, uh, that was a cool business. It was who, really, who, who really bought challenging. It? A home care company that wanted to diversify into hospice, so uh, which they did. Uh, but that was a very interesting business, very challenging uh, in a number of fronts, as you can imagine. But we went public with that one, and uh, we were the second uh, company to go public after the Twin Towers got hit. In fact, um, our guys... Uh, the CEO and the COO had been in the Merrill Lynch office, which mm. was next to the one of the towers, uh, the week before, and there was some sort of problem. And so that that visit, um, we were delayed a little bit in going public, and then you know we had the 9/11 happen, and then we basically were looking at. Um, well, the IPO market's dead. The market's not even open. Mm -hmm. you know, we're, we're kind of just sitting here wondering what's going to happen. And then the gal from Merrill Lynch calls up um, and says, uh, I think the market's going to open. And we were the second company to go to public after 9-11. What was that like compared it to was, 83? It was much, much more rewarding. Because we thought we'd really accomplished something, and the Merrill Lynch people were really pleased with what we had done, because that was a just a market where people didn't know what was happening. And didn't wasn't, know if there, yeah, wasn't there also uh, a feeling on the street that like fucking New York kicks ass, we're yeah. open again, and the the Wall Street's open, and we're 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 back after this horrendous thing. But we had to do the same thing. We had to go on the roadshow. We had to with investors and then just taking the the temperature of the investors the climate at that time wasn't really great yeah. right. and everybody was you know hesitant shell shocked and what was going to happen and a lot of the money center activity is in new york and they were obviously hit pretty hard so i was really happy that uh, our guys pulled that off as that was no mean feat and what was the was the 
ringing of the bell more celebratory? That one just the vibe. Um, that one really was. Um, Although to be honest, I don't remember much about it. Uh, <laughs> and this this uh, Merrill Lynch girl sounds like a rock star. She was, yeah, particularly on on the hospice deal. She yeah. was incredible. Jeez, and that's when I that uh, was still I was kind of dealing with Porsches and um, trying to remember exactly when I ran into the Three Musketeers, because <laughs> that was a really turning point in my That was my 2010. Yeah. That was, uh, yeah. It was 2010. So I wandered over from the uh, Maserati dealer and ran into you two, and then uh, basically George quite a bit later, but that was really a turning point. That really got me into car collecting. That was... Um, Something that involves trust and um, forward-looking uh, because I was trying to do rationally priced limited edition or specialty cars, mm -hmm. which I think we did. Yeah. Um, but it, it wasn't easy to do. And it was another thing. I wish I would have had a partner because I think um, could have done, done more, put it that way. Mm -hmm. Because I think there was opportunity when you guys were were there at Ferrari. Uh, that was kind of the golden year. The models were interesting. They were coming out with some interesting stuff. And yeah, there was a, there was. Uh, I, I was going to say there was a lot <coughs> happening product wise, but there's actually ten times more happening now, which I think is dilutive. Um, <clears throat> as far as you know, just there's too much. Well, when I came in and met you guys. The CEO of Maserati was the guy, I'm sorry, of Ferrari, was the guy who was more interested in keeping production at a certain Montezemolo level. Montezemolo was the greatest, the man. The greatest. Montezemolo uh, always said, we won't make more than 7,000 cars. Right. Mm -hmm. And everyone was talking about, oh, make an entry-level car. It will really, we could really grow. And he said, the entry-level car is a used Ferrari. <laughs> which is which is a great line. It's wonderful. He was he was he gave he, a shit about F one. Yeah, like he, he was, was super passionate about F one. And now that they're uh, what close to twenty thousand units in production. Wow. Um, and and I don't think he was wrong. It's just different because the 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 regime that pushed him out wanted volume mm -hmm. and they're and they're if you look at the stock price and you look at that they're they, they are correct but i don't know how much passion is is remaining right instead of just just transactional business well i have a couple of thoughts one is um if you're trying to be a luxury brand scarcity is an important component of that mm -hmm. it's huge yeah. I think part of the mystique of Ferrari is being a luxury brand. And when I've been over there, you know, you go to where the leather's being produced, you meet some of the designers like a Pina Farina. Mm -hmm. um, the guy who did the Barchetta, that was a thrill for me to meet because I had one. And um, now all that design is in-house. I'm not saying it's bad, it's just different. It's different. And the opportunity for some of the models when you look at a super america 
and the way that roof moves. Mm-hmm. I mean, there hasn't been anything like that before or since. Barquette, I thought, was a super interesting car. California was, I think, a home run for the company. Brought Huge. a that, lot of buyers. That, that got us through the recession. I mean, dude, yeah. that got us. That got us to you. And that was a beautiful car. Right, it was, it was fantastic. A car. Yeah, um, and fun, great to drive, easy, yeah. exciting. You could still get a little bit, a little bit loosey goosey in it, but it was. Yeah. It, it, and and that car shifting at sixty five hundred RPM, that pop. We never made a car since then. Yeah, that sounds that good. At that pop, yeah, yeah, the gearbox is great. Mm-hmm. But I was in a sixteen M, which was a car. Well, I wish I had them all, but <laughs> that was a car I would really like to have back because that was fun to drive. Yeah, yeah. super, super involving to drive. Uh, really special. Your your shifts car. at eight thousand RPMs was like somebody punching you in the face. It was wonderful. <laughs> it was a different for me because I had a lot of front engine cars. This was a mid engine car, mm-hmm. and it handled great. And while I while I've had some uh, Porsche mid engines with the Cayman and GT four and things like that, they all handle great. But that that was just such a special special yeah. car. How many cars do you think you've had since the one ninety SL? In the sport category, I'd say 20. Nah, I think you're low. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> what was what was the the biggest shit box you bought? What car oh, do you remember? The, yeah, I do. The, <laughs> the first Maserati, because they, when they, when that car came to me, the roof was Falling. The roof liner was literally coming down on my head. And you'd be driving around, and all of a sudden the car would stop. So that's how I knew the service guy so well. Right, right. But to their credit, Maserati said, okay, this is not a good car. We're going to put you in whatever you want. And they, they put me in uh, another black on black. Uh, GT and it was great. The GT you know, was a good car, car. Yeah. yeah. Well, the first one, because I made the mistake, at least at that time, of of getting one of the first models. But I got a first they, model Corvette, uh, the C8, and it's fabulous. But the first model, you know, new new cars now in the past like three or four years, there there are no bad new cars. Mm-hmm. There uh, and and maybe it's the way computers design cars and they manufacture cars but there are almost no missteps with new cars it's 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 pretty amazing so, so that and even if they're cheap yeah, like that, that maserati you bought was in 05 right that was the first no, year probably yeah or really oh th- yeah. no 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 the the, the was gran the turismo yeah mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. yeah that, that, that was it, that it, was did it have the automatic or the mm-hmm. or the cambio corso gearbox no, that was a Quattroporte. Yeah, I guess it must have been nine. Boy, they milked, they they got 10 plus years out of that design. Yeah. Yeah. You go to the Maserati factory and it's very different from the Ferrari factory. Yeah. Of course. It's very different. Yeah, <laughs> I went, okay, so I went to Maserati factory in probably 2004. And I, I, I'm sad to say I can't even remember it because then the next day you go to Ferrari, and that's all you remember. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's it's hard to 
remember the Maserati. But Montezemolo was our host, and he ruled like Mussolini. So when you had a group of dealers together, we're at the Maserati factory, and he's in charge of Maserati as well as Ferrari. And and he 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 he, he was trying to embrace it like we all were because you had to, um, but it wasn't Ferrari, and it was a it was a fiat company that they acquired and they had to do a lot of stuff to get it up to standard and so he's got the american dealers there and he's 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 a tyrant in the best ways in the worst ways is when he asks uh, are there any questions that's not a question you do not ask a question if <laughs> if he asks are there any questions it's just because it's cordial for him to say but he doesn't want anyone to ask questions he wants to thank you for coming and then to adjourn for lunch and uh he says is there any questions and the dealer from detroit brought this new like sales manager full of piss and vinegar from some other brand that had no idea how the italians worked <laughs> and he Montezemolo says, is there any questions? And the kid from Michigan raises his hand and goes, yes, I have questions. <laughs> I have a question. And Montezemolo had this look on his face, and then he turns to his, like, lieutenant and kind of like, who the fuck is this guy? And he goes, yes, hey, because he was the most affable, smoothest guy ever. The guy asked the question, which was a terrible question. He said, hey, the new convertible's got a plastic window, and everybody in America has glass windows. I was just wondering if you have any plans to change the plastic to glass <laughs> and everybody all the dealers are going oh my god oh my god i can't believe he has a question like everyone's going holy shit. Mont montezemolo says uh well the, the production of the car there's not enough room for glass uh, but we're working on it and he turned he turned his his guy and kind of said like who the hell is this who the hell is that guy and then I never saw that guy ever again. <laughs> it was funny. It was funny. Oh, that's great. That he, is he, an experience I, I hope everybody who loves cars can can visit Ferrari and visit the factory. Oh, wow. It's yeah. a wonderful, wonderful tour that they do. And steeped in history and nostalgia. And the oh, and just, just, and the, the, just the 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 the. The way the workers are dressed and the buildings and the architecture and the, the tempo of the place, it's amazing. Yeah, it really is. Last time I went, it was on the track above where the racing team headquarters are. They don't allow you on the floor where the racing uh, team is, is uh, working. But that was interesting. Oh, and the oh, new, the new building. The new yeah. F1 building. Yeah, the new yeah F1. it's great. Yeah, it's pretty impressive. Yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a pretty impressive thing. Well, uh, Dave, thank you very much, man. It was very, very yeah. great to see you and great to hear your story. Right, I, I have one more hospital-related question because it's been uh, – you've been out of the game for a while? Or you still invest? Or what do you – I have one uh, portfolio company left uh, that we started a few years ago. Um, part of the – my career has been in teaching. I taught for five years at UCI, and one of the students there, a bright young Vietnamese woman, um, said, you know, I'd, I'd always like to, to start my own company. And eventually she did. 
and sold it and, and made quite a bit of money. And then uh, we got together and she said, would you help me um, start a company that takes care of the sickest part of the Medicare population? And we think we can save Medicare money and give higher quality of care if we can work out a contractual relationship with Medicare. So that company is ongoing and, and very successful, private equity backed now, and um, thrilled to see her doing really well. Oh, that's really cool. And I knew she would because she'd already done it once before, but it's, it's Are you, nice. Are you still teaching? No. No? No. When the, when, the, uh, when the phones came in, I got out. <laughs> Oh yeah, yeah. So that's that kind of leads me into our. We try to wrap up with what would your be your message? The re, one of the reasons we started this podcast is we have kids and we want our kids to hear this because mm -hmm. there are not a lot of cats like you guys who are do did what you do. So what would your your message be to our kids, our youth, and you know if you have, where can we find your business? Yeah, it's not what you get, it's what you give. Mm -hmm. At the end of the day, strive to be in a position where you can give. That's how societies are built. That's how businesses are built. That's how the world works mm -hmm. when it's successful. When you go down another path of um, trying to take things, that doesn't work very well. You know, be constructive, be a builder, be an entrepreneur. If you can, that's your calling. But at the end of the day, it's it's all about what you can give, not That's what great. you got. Love it. Yeah, it's always great to be with you guys. Uh, I don't see you enough. Uh, yeah. COVID kind of put a dent in in running over here and seeing you guys. So this has been super great for me. Well, oh, good. Well, thank well, you good. very much. We really appreciate it. We're glad you made the time, and thanks, Dave. And you mm -hmm. welcome back anytime. Yeah, yeah. and and thanks for the sea smoke. Yeah, yeah. That's that's pretty great. For yeah. those of you listening, Sea Smoke out of uh, Rita Hills is what's that? Our... That's a South Thing uh, 2018 by the taste of it. Yeah. <laughs> what a guy. <laughs> Got a palate. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Thanks Dave. Dave. Appreciate it. <laughs>